I'm excited. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. Again, that's 1 Samuel 16, uh, 1 through 13. And um, before I just kind of roll into it, it's worth kind of going back and understand where we started as a little bit of context as to where we are today. And if you remember back and back and back, we started with Eli, right? And Eli has got some mixed reviews. You know, he's uh, Eli the priest. Um, he's doing some good things, but, uh, you know, he, he, he heard Hannah's prayer and she, he thought she was drunk. Well, that's a little bit of a miss. Um, you know, he, he's got some worthless sons, the Bible says. Worthless sons. And then last but not least, uh, you have God talking to Samuel, and Eli kind of misses that God is talking to Samuel. And so he's just a little bit dull, but he is really devoted and loyal in trying to raise up Samuel. And so we've got Samuel, and Samuel was this incredibly faithful servant. He was a prophet and a judge of the people, but he too also had disobedient sons. Scripture says that when he was old or at an old age, he made his sons judges, okay? It's a bit of a problem. That's not his job. That's God's job. And the problem was is that his sons were corrupt. And we see that later or earlier, excuse me, in 1 Samuel 8.3. They were perverting justice. They were taking bribes. But these were the types of people who were judges. And if you think back to the book of Judges, there's been a little bit of a pattern. There's a pattern of corruption with Gideon and then Samson. And now we have Eli's sons, and now we have Samuel's sons. And the people are a little bit tired. You can see why they're, they're over it and why they're, they're wondering as elders, you know, what, what should we do? What can we do to get out from in, underneath this this corruption that seems to be surrounding us just generation after generation. And so what they do is desperately they approach Samuel and say, please, please will you provide us a king? Will you just provide us a king? Because they felt like the Lord's anointed and Samuel's poorly appointed were inadequate to lead the people of God. And so what do they get? So God instructs Samuel. This is God instructing Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, 7, and 9, he says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now then, obey their voice. And then we see again in 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 16, it says the Lord reveals to Samuel whom he is to appoint as king, and it's none other than Saul. And it's really interesting because Saul's name is defined as asked of God, and that's exactly what the elders did. They asked God for a king. And then we get to Saul. We start to see who he is. He's the firstborn. He's described as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He must have been one beautiful man. Yeah? The handsomest man of all the people. Right? 
I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they said, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him in all the people. Incredible. What more could you ask for? Samuel came from money, and he was incredibly tall, dark, and handsome, right? Is this not, though, as we think about who we are as a society, is this not what we crave today? Do we not swoon over celebrities, kind of the, the Clark Gable of his day? Or how, how many Tom Selleck fans in here? Yeah, I see some women's, uh, yeah, I get you. Or how about uh, maybe, uh, who else could we have? Maybe Dwayne Johnson? I don't know, he's tart, tall, handsome. Yeah, that's a good one. But no doubt, right? No doubt these outward qualities are impressed upon us. From a very young age, our, our world, our culture is shaping our, our minds to admire such people. From the latest Disney prince that you're going to see to the people's most sexiest man, we're constantly being bombarded with this influence. And it's true today as it was back in Samuel's time when he was made king. They were enamored by him because of his outward appearance. And so they got what they wanted. They got exactly what they wanted. So much so that they, they shouted, long live the king. And for a moment, Saul was doing pretty good. They were pretty pleased by the success that he was having, but then there starts to be a transition. There's a transition in Saul's reign over the people. And he loses sight and he starts to pretty quickly prove himself unworthy because he's consistently and blatantly disobeying God. He's making rash decisions. He's got erratic behavior. And it says, Saul was no longer fit to be king. And so he was rebuked and ultimately rejected by God. And I want you to hear this, church. We love a, we love a, a, a patient and loving God. An incredibly patient and loving God. But enough is enough. There, there comes that point in time when there's no genuine repentance. There's no change in the pattern of sin. And therefore, they're no longer qualified to lead God's people. You could use that same thing with no longer qualified to lead a church, no longer qualified to take on this role or that role. When we have repeated sin in our life and we're not willing to repent, we automatically lose our ability to lead. It was time for a change of leadership. And that's where we start today. Samuel's grief says, the Lord said to Samuel, this is verse one, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You see, Samuel felt an immense responsibility for the new monarchy's failure. 
the new way God was going to rule his people. And it was actually his sons, his corrupt and sinful sons that eventually broke the camel's back that caused the elders to want a king. You see, it was under Samuel's guidance that Saul continually disobeyed God. So you can see how Samuel might be grieving right now. It's because he understands that he has to take some personal responsibility for what's happened. And he's grieving over it. You remember that thing, personal responsibility? Remember how we used to believe in that? And we continue on. It says, fill your horn with oil and go. This is God to Samuel. And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Notice he says here, I, the Lord your God, have provided for myself a king. The one you asked for didn't work out. But there's another one to come. This is a statement of contrast. Remember, the elders represented the requests of the people. And Saul was provided, but ultimately God needed to provide a king for himself. And you're going to notice something radically different between Saul and the king to come. And so we continue on in verse 2. It says, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Ah, you're thinking, well, come on, man. You think he's going to kill you? Well, yeah. I mean, he chased David in the desert and tried to kill him seven times. So, yeah, let's, let's not get all judgy, right, on Samuel. Yeah, this guy had erratic behavior. And you didn't know what he was going to do. And you didn't know what he was going to think. And so he was nervous. And so there was some hesitation. So as being gracious, a gracious God, God provides Samuel with an excuse, a plausible excuse as to what would do to get him in front of the family of Jesse. And so we continue here in verses 2b and, and on. It says, And the Lord said, Take a, a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? Notice the fear of the elders in the city. They trembled as they met Samuel. You see, this fear illustrates the reputation that Samuel had as a judge, a priest, and a prophet. And this also iterates that guilty men tremble when put against the light of holiness. Have you ever trembled? I certainly have. I tremble when I come into the context of God's word because it is holy and set apart, as we all should. And then he said, peaceably, 
I have come, verse 5, to sacrifice to the Lord, to consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Remember, this was kind of God's excuse for Samuel to go and seek out the new king. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And here's where we get to the heart of the story. Here's the point, the crux, the focal of this whole narrative. Notice with great care as we transition in the verse 6 and 7. When they came, he, this is Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on uh, the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. You see, notice that Samuel was quite confident that Eliab was the Lord's anointed. He was confident. Why? Because he was the firstborn of a fairly wealthy family. And he was tall, dark, and handsome. And if it worked the first time and the people loved him, why wouldn't it work the second time? And it's the first guy he saw. Well, Saul was the first guy he saw, and Saul was chasing a donkey. This guy is just there. And so you got to be putting yourself in Samuel's mind. And he's thinking, well, Saul finds out I'm here, I'm dead. So it's like, yep, you're it. Praise God. Let's get some oil. Let's anoint him. Let's wrap it up. And let's get out of town. What you think? Right? And that's what's going on. In all fairness to Samuel, man, he's like, this is what happened the first time. Why wouldn't it happen the second time this way? But here's the problem. Samuel would have just chosen Saul 2.0. That's who he was going to choose. If God hadn't intervened. And God intervened. And instead of chastising Samuel for making maybe another poor choice, he was gracious, and he corrects him, and he opens his eyes to say, look, Samuel, I don't see what you see. I see what's going on in the heart. I see what's happening inside. And it begs the question, well, then what, what does man see? And we see here that the man sees the outward appearance, but the more profound question is, what is it that our heart desires to see? What do we desire to see? And here's some themes that I think are going to resonate as truth as to what we desire to see. We are drawn to the wealthy and we want to be wealthy. If you don't, you're lying to yourself. James 2 talks about the sin of partiality because even back then in the church, people were being partial to the wealthy. And he was pushing against it. And we're curious as to, to how the rich live their lives. You remember uh, Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Oh, I'm Robin Leach, you know? It was awesome. Or how about the, the lowbrow version of MTV Cribs? Anybody remember MTV Cribs? Maybe not. I don't know. 
But we're enamored by the wealthy, by the way they live their lives, the cars that they drive, the fashion that they wear, the homes they live in, the vacations they take. We want to see it all. And then sometimes what we'll do is we'll imagine ourselves, what would it be like if I was wealthy? And then you go, kiss yourself righteous, you go, but God, I would do the righteous thing with the money that you would give me. I wouldn't spend it like they would spend. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or how about we're drawn to the physically attractive and want to be physically attractive? That's fair. It goes without saying we as a society do everything that we can to be physically attractive. We go to the gym, we purchase the latest clothes, we get our hair styled, as you can tell. We get our eyebrows plucked. We get our unwanted hair waxed. We make sure our teeth are straight, they're white. Right? If we don't like wrinkles, we get Botox. We don't like the size of our thighs, the abundance of our chins, the droopiness of our eyes. We go get a little you know, nip and tuck. Right? It's pretty normal. But not only are we envious of the attractive and those who are naturally endowed with attractive features, we are enamored. Have you ever been in the presence of an incredibly attractive person? It can be intimidating, right? They often exude this particular influence over us, you know? I should know I wake up to her every morning, right? Amen. Just want to make sure we got that on tape. Jordan, we get that on tape? Okay, good. Or how about ambition and power, right? We're drawn to the go-getters, the naturally extroverted, the, the A-type personalities that gets things done, right? There's no ocean they can't swim, no mountain they can't climb, no star that they can't go and reach. It's just who they are. They're disciplined beyond measure. They're quite annoying, right? They never quit. It's always going and going and going, and naturally people are drawn to their leadership. Or how about the confident and articulate? They're the smooth talkers. They're incredibly intelligent and funny, right? They just have a way of painting with the English language, and it has you listening to every word, just hanging on every word. And the people are so good that sometimes it doesn't even matter what they say. You're just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this gets us a little bit in trouble with these smooth talkers, right? Because we don't listen sometimes to what they're actually saying. This is how false teachers start to wiggle their way in, right? And how do I know this is all true? Because the Bible warns us about the world. And these are all things of the world. This stuff is getting sold to us nonstop, 24-7. The better question than the what do we see or what do we want to see, the better question is what does God see or what does God want to see in us? And so we're going to work through that. The Lord looks on the heart. But when the Lord talks about the heart, what is he referring to? Ed Welsh said this. He says, the heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our hearts desire. It's the symbolic seat for 
our emotional and intellectual and spiritual life. Simply put, the heart represents that of the inner man, of our motivations, our thoughts, and our feelings. But what is there to see? Well, let's first understand the natural inclination and orientation of the heart. Jeremiah 17.9, which will be on the screen. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? We all think of little babies, little infants. They're so cute. They're without sin. Nope. They've got a wicked little heart. Cute, but wicked. <laughs> Mark 7, 21 through 23 says this. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, witness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Feeling pretty good about yourself right now? You see, we are dead men and women walking. Ephesians says we are spiritually blind and walking dead in our sins, but God, right? Amen, but God. And the proof of this is we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're good. Proverbs 16, 2, which should be on the screen, says, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Or how about Luke 16, 15? And he said to them, You who are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Some truth bombs here, huh? God knows the truth and the orientation of our heart, and because he is a just God, he has to judge us accordingly. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, the motivation and orientation of our heart is seen in the evidence of our thoughts and our deeds. It's the fruit. It's the fruit. If I want to know what you believe and who you are, I just need to spend a little bit of time in, and you're going to produce fruit. And it's either fruit that glorifies God or it's fruit that glorifies you. Those are the two different fruit. Luke 6, 43 through 45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Listen, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. I want you to think about a water bottle for just a second, right? I've got this water bottle. If I am full of all things good and you squeeze it, then what comes out? Good. But if I'm evil, if my heart is deceitful, if I'm not glorifying God with my life and I get a little pressure on my heart, then what do I squeeze out? Bad stuff. Bad stuff. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, for the unbeliever, their heart has been weighed and found wanting 
the unredeemed life is marked by sin, and the resultant is going to be judgment. And that judgment is going to be condemnation, and that condemnation is going to be eternal death. Yeah? But those being regenerated by the Holy Spirit and transformed get a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How many people, you ever feel like your heart is a heart of stone sometimes? Remember this promise. God gives us a new heart. But there's something involved there's this confession of sin. Psalm 51, 9 through 10 says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The person that confesses Christ and confesses their sins believes and understands what Romans 9, to, 9 through 10 says. It says, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The heart must believe before the mouth can confess, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, when the heart believes its orientation turns from self and to God, and it, and it focus, focuses on God through worship, and we now transition from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. That's the process of sanctification. And because we're doing it, Proverbs 4.23 says that keep your heart with all vigilance, from it flows the spring of life. And I want you to hear this. Our focus, church, our focus, our daily in and out focus must be to cultivate and protect a God-oriented heart. A heart that glorifies God, lives out the gospel, and is obedient to be used by God in expanding his kingdom on earth. Day in, day out, cultivating and orienting our hearts towards God. But who has such a heart? You see, after God rejected Eliab, the handsome firstborn of Jesse, Samuel continued in his search. And so we're back in verse 8 here. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. It's like a Cinderella story, right? And Jesse made seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these, right? You're thinking, okay. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, not the oldest. There remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, he's off in a field somewhere. And Samuel's saying, we're not sitting down until this one comes, because he knows the one to come is the one to be anointed. And we're going to stand until he gets here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But why David, all people? Why David? Was it because he was ironically handsome? We know that's not true, right? Because that was the impetus of God's rebuke on Samuel. So that's not it. But let's think about it for the moment. And this is why it requires us to think the greater context of 1 Samuel. When you start reading 1 Samuel all the way through, you start to really understand who David was. David continually served both his father and King Saul, God's anointed, even as King Saul was trying to come after him and kill him. David was incredibly courageous and protective of God's glory. You just have to look at the story of Goliath. He had an unshakable faith, and therefore he was faithful and faith-filled. He was described as patient and long-suffering, just and forgiving. He proved to be approachable, but not above reproof. And he responded in righteous anger, but did not seek sinful vengeance. That's David. You see, David, above all, placed his ultimate faith in God, worshiped God, sought the counsel of God, the direction of God. He was obedient to God, and he humbled himself before God. This is why God describes him as one after his own heart. David was faithful, obedient, and courageous. There were stories where when he was a shepherd, if, if a bear or a lion had taken a sheep, he would run after the bear and lion and would grab the sheep out of the bear or lion's mouth. That's pretty courageous. And it said, when... That animal would rise against him. He would take him by the beard and he would kill the lion or the bear. That's incredible. That's courageous. You see, he was so faithful, obedient, and courageous, he would put his life on the line for his father's flock without question or without complaint. That's something. But even so, he was belittled by his brothers. He was talked down as nobody of little worth. And he was reminded that he was the least of the brothers and last of them all. What was the real possibility, church, as being the youngest, being the shepherd in the field, this lowly, belittled shepherd? What was the likelihood that God would choose him as king? Well, in man's eyes, the likelihood was impossible. But then we get to but God. But 
God. God exalts the humble and what? Humbles the proud. God does not see as man sees, but looks at the heart. God chose David, the youngest, with the least honorable role as shepherd, to be exalted and anointed as king because he was a man after his own heart. His heart was firmly rooted and oriented towards him. That's why. And I want you to just step back from 1 Samuel for a moment. I want you to get a bigger picture of what's going on here. David as king is that, but of a foreshadow of the greatest king to ever step foot on this earth. The king of all kings. You see, he was the good and faithful shepherd that put his life down for his father's flock. He was lowly and gentle and heart and was faithful and obedient and courageous to point of death on a cross. Jesus, God incarnate and without sin, chose to bear our sins and the sins of David so that we could receive the gift of salvation and be reconciled back to the Father. David was a foreshadow of Jesus and Jesus without sin. So I want to ask you a question. What does God see in your heart? Does he see a heart that is full of loyalty and devotion and worship and adoration and reverence and obedience and repentance and above all love? Is that what he sees in your heart? Or does he see a heart that is self-motivated, self-centered, self-righteous, and self-exalted? We need to take a sober look at who we are and what possesses our heart. Are we to be like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke about, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, inside the heart are full of bones of the dead? If you're anything like me, you're grieving over the condition of your heart. And the only way forward is progressive sanctification. That's the only way forward, church. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 says this, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We see this in Colossians 3, 5 through 17. We need to put off the old and sinful man. And put on the new creation in the image of Christ. Day after day, after day. We need to submit every desire to God and his truth. And by doing so, you are putting off the old and putting on the new. Step by step, day by day, our heart is being rooted 
and oriented towards God. And I know we struggle. I know we all struggle. If our heart's desire is to be wealthy, then submit that desire to the Lord and meditate on Matthew 6.24. If your heart's desire is full of lust, submit that desire to the Lord and meditate on Matthew 5.27. If your heart's desire is to be respected and recognized as we all want to be, submit that desire to God and really spend some time in Philippians 2 talking about the humility of Christ. If your heart's desire is to seek revenge, submit that desire to God and meditate on Romans 12, 19 through 20. This says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if your enemy is thirsty, provide him a drink. You see, you could put anything in there. If your heart's desire is to blank and it's sinful and unrighteous, you need to submit that desire to God and meditate on the scripture that points light and truth on it. That's how we start to orient our heart towards God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.